This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Opheliad in New South Wales, Australia, August 2006. Ranald Bannerman's Boyhood by George MacDonald. Chapter 5. I Begin Life. I began life, and that after no pleasant fashion, as near as I can guess, about the age of six years. One glorious morning in early summer, I found myself led by the ungentle hand of Mrs. Mitchell towards a little school on the outside of the village, kept by an old woman called Mrs. Shand. In an English village, I think she would have been called Dame Shand. We called her Lucky Shand. Half dragged along the road by Mrs. Mitchell, from whose rough grasp I attempted in vain to extricate my hand, I looked around at the shining fields and up at the blue sky, where a lark was singing, as if he had just found out he could sing, with something like the despair of a man going to the gallows and bidding farewell to the world. We had to cross a little stream, and when we reached the middle of the footbridge, I tugged yet again at my imprisoned hand with a half-formed intention of throwing myself into the brook. But my efforts were still unavailing. Over a half-mile or so, rendered weary by unwillingness, I was led to the cottage door. No such cottage as some of my readers will picture, with roses and honeysuckle hiding its walls, but a dreary little house, with nothing green to cover the brown stones of which it was built, and having an open ditch in front of it, with a stone slab over it for a bridge. Did I say there was nothing on the walls? This morning there was the loveliest sunshine, and that I was going to leave behind. It was very bitter, especially as I had expected to go with my elder brother to spend the day at a neighbouring farm. Mrs. Mitchell opened the door and let me in. It was an awful experience. Dame Shand stood at her table ironing. She was as tall as Mrs. Mitchell, and that was enough to prejudice me against her at once. She wore a close-fitting widow's cap with a black ribbon round it. Her hair was grey and her face was as grey as her hair, and her skin was gathered in wrinkles about her mouth, where they twitched and twitched, as if she were constantly meditating something unpleasant. She looked up inquiringly. "'I have brought you a new scholar,' said Mrs. Mitchell. "'Well, very well,' said the dame in a dubious tone. "'I hope he's a good boy, for he must be good if he comes here.' "'Well, he's just middling. His father spares the rod, Mrs. Shand, and we know what comes of that.' They went on with their talk, which, as far as I can recall it, was complimentary to none but the two women themselves. Meantime, I was making what observations my terror would allow. About a dozen children were seated on forms along the walls, looking over the tops of their spelling-books at the newcomer. In the farther corner, two were kicking at each other as opportunity offered, looking very angry, but not daring to cry. My next discovery was terribly disconcerting. Some movement drew my eyes to the floor— There I saw a boy of my own age on all fours, fastened by a string to a leg of the table, at which the dame was ironing, while, horrible to relate, a dog not very big but very ugly, and big enough to be frightened at, lay under the table watching him. I gazed in utter dismay. "'Ah, you may look,' said the dame. "'If you're not a good boy, that is how you shall be served. The dog shall have you to look after.' I trembled and was speechless." After some further confabulation, Mrs. Mitchell took her leave, saying, "'I'll come back for him at one o'clock, and if I don't come, just keep him till I do come.' The dame accompanied her to the door, and then I discovered that she was lame and hobbled very much. A resolution arose full-formed in my brain. 
I sat down on the form near the door and kept very quiet. Had it not been for the intention I cherished, I am sure I should have cried. When the dame returned, she resumed her box iron, in which the heater went rattling about, as, standing on one leg, the other was so much shorter, she moved it to and fro over the garment on the table. Then she called me to her by name, in a would-be pompous manner. I obeyed, trembling. "'Can you say your letters?' she asked. Now, although I could not read, I could repeat the alphabet. How I had learned it, I do not know. I did repeat it. "'How many questions of your catechism can you say?' she asked next. Not knowing with certainty what she meant, I was silent. "'No sulking!' said the dame, and, opening a drawer in the table, she took out a catechism. Turning back the cover, she put it in my hand, and told me to learn the first question. She had not even inquired whether I could read. I took the catechism and stood as before. "'Go to your seat,' she said. I obeyed and with the book before me pondered my plan. Everything depended on whether I could open the door before she could reach me. Once out of the house I was sure of running faster than she could follow. And soon I had my first experience of how those are helped who will help themselves. The ironing, of course, required a fire to make the irons hot, and as the morning went on, the sunshine on the walls, conspiring with the fire on the hearth, made the place too hot for the comfort of the old dame. She went and set the door wide open. I was instantly on the alert, watching for an opportunity. One soon occurred. A class of some five or six was reading, if reading it could be called, out of the Bible. At length it came to the turn of one who blundered dreadfully. It was the same boy who had been tied under the table, but he had been released for his lesson. The dame hobbled to him and found he had his book upside down, whereupon she turned in wrath to the table and took from the drawer a long leather strap with which she proceeded to chastise him. As his first cry reached my ears, I was halfway to the door. On the threshold I stumbled and fell. "'The new boy's running away!' shrieked some little sycophant inside. I heard with horror, but I was up and off in a moment. I had not, however, got many yards from the cottage before I heard the voice of the dame screaming after me to return. I took no heed, only sped the faster. But what was my horror to find her command enforced by the pursuing bark of her prime minister? This paralyzed me. I turned, and there was the fiendish-looking dog close on my heels. I could run no longer. For one moment I felt as if I should sink to the earth for my sheer terror. The next moment a wholesome rage sent the blood to my brain. From abject cowardice to wild attack, I cannot call it courage, was the change of an instant. I rushed towards the little wretch. I did not know how to fight him, but in desperation I threw myself upon him and dug my nails into him. They had fortunately found their way to his eyes. He was the veriest coward of his species. He yelped and howled, and, struggling from my grasp, ran with his tail merged in his person back to his mistress, who was hobbling after me. But with the renewed strength of the triumph I turned again for home, and ran as I had never run before. When or where the dame gave in I do not know, but I never turned my head until I laid it on Kirsty's bosom, and there I burst out sobbing and crying. It was all the utterance I had left. As soon as Kirsty had succeeded in calming me, I told her the whole story. She said very little, but I could see she was very angry. No doubt she was pondering what could be done. She got me some milk, half cream I do believe, it was so nice, and some oat cake, and went on with her work. 
While I ate, I reflected that any moment Mrs. Mitchell might appear to drag me back in disgrace to that horrible den. I knew that Kirsty's authority was not equal to hers, and that she would be compelled to give me up. So I watched an opportunity to escape once more and hide myself, so that Kirsty might be able to say she did not know where I was. When I had finished and Kirsty had left the kitchen for a moment, I sped noiselessly to the door and looked out into the farmyard. There was no one to be seen. Dark and brown and cool, the door of the barn stood open, as if inviting me to shelter and safety, for I knew that in the darkest end of it lay a great heap of oat straw. I sped across the intervening sunshine into the darkness and began burrowing in the straw like a wild animal, drawing out handfuls and laying them carefully aside, so that no disorder should betray my retreat. When I had made a hole large enough to hold me, I got in, but kept drawing out the straw behind me and filling the hole in front. This I continued until I had not only stopped up the entrance, but placed a good thickness of straw between me and the outside. By the time I had burrowed as far as I thought necessary, I was tired, and lay down at full length in my hole, delighting in such a sense of safety as I had never before experienced. I was soon fast asleep. End of chapter 5